0: Today's scripture reading comes from John chapter 8, verses 12 to 30. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where i come from or where i'm going you judge according to the flesh i judge no one yet even if i do judge my judgment is true for it is not i alone who judge but i am the father who set me in your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true i am the one who bears witness about myself and the father who set me bears witness about me they said to him therefore where is your father jesus answered you know neither me nor my father if you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you you will, you cannot come. So the, Jesus, so the Jews said, Will he kill himself since he says where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, and I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just as I have been telling you from the beginning, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he was speaking. He had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak, just as my Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. And as He was saying these things, many believed in Him. This is the Word of God.
1: we begin with a question. Do you feel, either now or in the recent past, like you are walking in darkness. You know, the imagery of darkness is vivid and for some of us in our experience, it actually, uh, it fits, it makes sense. But if we were to have a conversation among those who would say yes or maybe, we might mean different things by that. For some of us, it's emotional, it's how we're feeling. You know, we're now at a peak uh, of, of, for those of you who suffer seasonal affect disorder, we're literally, having had a, less light over the last couple of months is depressing your mood and it affects you so that just things just feel like you're in the dark some people think of this language um, in moral categories you look at the world and mm-hmm. violence and abuse and lies and corruption and the world feels like a dark place that's how you how you see it how you experience it for some of you it's it's simply the unknown all of the the things that you don't know like what's next in life. Maybe you're waiting for the next job, or, or you have a decision to make, and you don't know the future, and so it feels like you're in the dark. Uh, you just don't know what's next. Um, what Jesus seems to be assuming here is even if in this moment you feel like you know, you're encouraged, you're energized, you know what's going on, there's always the risk that we're simply keeping ourselves busy, and that over time we'll look back and realize we have not living for what's really important what's really valuable and that we've simply been going in circles without knowing it nobody wants to waste their lives jesus comes and he says i'm the light of the world and he's talking about something profound he's he's assuming a human experience something like walking in darkness and i don't know where you connect personally with that concept of darkness but jesus is saying something here that's really important and so when he says he is the light of the world, in verse 12, he goes on to say, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He's coming to say there is something really good that he is revealing, that is uh, that is, he is making known. And yet we have trouble understanding it. We have trouble believing it. We have trouble seeing that it's good. What a strange thing. Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. And I'm going to use verse 12 just to organize our time. In terms of uh, three different sections of the sermon, I'm going to talk about walking in darkness first, then following Jesus, and then the light of life. So, first, Jesus talks about walking in darkness. He says, If you follow me, you will not walk in darkness, which assumes to a certain degree until we are following him. That's how he would describe our problem, that there's a certain walking in darkness that's part of. Uh, The human experience. Uh, Now, that imagery connects with the nature of the conversation Jesus has after he makes this statement with a particular group of religious leaders. And if you think about that imagery right now, if we were together in a dark room and somebody turned on the light, um, you wouldn't need to tell people that you turned on the light. It would be self evident. So if somebody said, What happened? the explanation would be somebody just turned on the light. But it would be strange if somebody said, no, they didn't. Uh, if you were in a bright room and somebody said, the lights aren't on, I can't see a thing, then there would be something wrong. So Jesus comes and says, He is the light of the world. And he's saying these deep and profound things. If you reach, read John's gospel, He and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen God. There's, he's assuming a certain self evident reality. If you know God, if you have the eyes to see it, when I come, if you understand the scriptures and how things are being fulfilled, there's something profound that you will see, but what keeps happening is he winds up in argument. So if you're in a dark room and somebody turns on the light and people don't believe that the lights are on, something's wrong. Uh, You don't need evidence, you just need to see the light. You only need evidence if you don't see the light. And then the kind of conversation they have with Jesus that you see uh, in verses 13 to maybe uh, 16 or so, are there witnesses? Well, you're talking about yourself, how many witnesses there are. Jesus is saying he's the light of the world. And the fact that he then needs to uh, explain it rationally says that people are not seeing what's there. And then the question is, from the perspective of the religious leaders, is there something wrong with him claiming that the lights are on when they're not? So you can imagine if you're in a dark room and then somebody says, thank goodness, the lights are on, but it's still dark. You'd start to wonder, Am I being gaslighted here? Am I being manipulated? Why are people telling me the lights are on? And so the concern they have is a legitimate concern that many of us have. Jesus makes these profound claims. Is he actually being truthful or is he trying to trick us? Because it would not be good if he was deceitful, trying to come and tell us that he's the light of the world when he's actually not. But another issue, if, if you're in a room and, and the lights are on, Uh, What Jesus seems to be saying is the problem is not with the light. The problem is with what you're using to perceive it. And so in the analogy of light, there's blindness. So if the lights in the room are on and you don't see it, maybe there's not something wrong with the light, but there's something wrong with your eyes. And that's Jesus's response. So he's engaging them, talking about witnesses. But the fact that he's saying, I am the light of the world, and they're saying, no, you're not, or convince us, immediately moves the conversation where it's hard to be productive. How do you convince somebody in a bright room that, uh, that the lights are actually on if they don't see and perceive it? So, so the conversation gets a little bit odd where Jesus is saying, well, you need two witnesses. Well, the Father is a witness. And so that's one of the things John tells us that the, the signs that Jesus does, things no human being can do. And keep in mind the next two signs, the last two signs in John's gospel is in John 9, Jesus heals a man born blind. And in John 11, Jesus raises a man who's dead and in the grave. And so his claiming he's the light of the world, the light of life is actually going to be worked out in the, in the rest of the gospel. Um, but here he is saying that, that the evidence is that the father, God is doing things in your midst that if you see them and understand them should alert you that, uh, something extraordinary is happening. And then they're not seeing it when Jesus explains that they say, well, <laughs> you're bearing witness about yourself. And we know in John, a couple of things. One is he's saying, Jesus is saying the spirit will come. So at the end of the, uh, you know, after Jesus' ministry is done, the witness the signs of the father, the scriptures that the father has given, but also the spirit that testifies in our hearts, that opens our eyes. Or perhaps more difficult to understand, John here and in, in, in the letters attributed to John talks about the witnesses being the water and the blood. What is that? Well, this, these ideas of witnesses uh, remain part of the conversation, but right now they're engaging Jesus and saying, well, because you're trying to explain these things to us, you're not trustworthy. And Jesus is responding, the fact that I have to explain these things to you shows that you fundamentally need to hear what I'm about to say. And so in, in uh, verse 13, they say, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus's response shows that there's a, there's a complex problem of here that they don't know what they should know, they don't understand what they should know, and their judgment is wrong. Verse nineteen, you know neither me nor my father, and so they ask these questions. Who are you? When he says he's going somewhere, where are you going? Um, Jesus' response is, You don't. If you knew God, and if you knew me. Uh, you would understand things differently. And, and here Jesus is tapping into the kind of knowing that we see from the very beginning of the Bible, which is relational. Not just that there's a set of objective facts that Jesus is coming to pull together to make an airtight argument, but there's something personal that human beings are not experiencing. We, we are disconnected from God. We don't know God. And Jesus says, you don't know the Father. And that's one of the reasons when I announce that the light is with you, that you don't see it. And so in verses 15 to 16, he says, you judge according to the flesh, according to your humanity, according to your limitations. I judge no one, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. So so there's this radical claim being made in John's gospel that Jesus actually existed before humanity, and he was sent by the Father, and therefore he's making known what we cannot see or figure out, but can only be revealed and God is personally revealing these things and so it isn't is the argument persuasive but actually do you know God. Um, and in in verse 27, it says they did not understand Jesus was speaking them to about the father, the father that they don't know and so they don't understand what he's talking about. And uh, it's kind of like if you met somebody um, that you didn't really know, but you knew a lot of facts about the person. The person lives in Scotland, the person wears plaid pants, uh, whatever kind of description there are, you might think that person must love golf. But somebody who knows them would say, oh, no, that person doesn't love golf. And then you just realized you made certain assumptions based on some facts. But the person who knows them would uh, would know that's not the case. Um, There are all sorts of things people know about God. And Jesus is talking to people who have studied the scripture who know all sorts of facts, but what he's saying is, yeah, you know all sorts of things and all sorts of principles and all sorts of things God has done, but you don't know God. And because of that, your judgment is completely wrong. You're misunderstanding things. I'm announcing light, but it's like you're still in the dark. You're not understanding it. You're not grasping it. And um, one of the key warnings in the Bible is about idolatry. And what is the nature of idolatry? That... We sort of devote ourselves to this created thing that we could see, that we could touch, that we could experience. But the ultimate problem, the analysis in the Bible is, but an idol is not alive. An idol is, is, a, is an object for your superstitious desires. You're, you're, you're imparting meaning onto something that doesn't have it. And the warning is those who worship idols become like them, they're lifeless. If you devote yourself to an idol, you will become lifeless. The idea is there's a living God and if you know God, that will give you life. And these days, maybe we're not as naturally a religious people, but the problem of idolatry has its roots in how we depersonalize, uh, where God is not a living being that we know, but God is either out there or perhaps not out there. But we relate to the world by analyzing, by figuring out the rules, by willpower. And and the warning is that we lose our humanity, so it's interesting to think of whatever think, things you think you might gain by denying God's existence a certain measure of freedom. Now, the warning is, but you, if God is the living, life-giving, life-sustaining God, uh, to not know God personally is to get rid of the very thing that you want. And so you busy yourself with things that feel like they will reward you, but nothing's ever satisfying because your life is fundamentally lifeless. And so the warning about idolatry, uh, so maybe we don't make statues, but we have the tendency to depersonalize, to dehumanize, to objectify. And you see how this ruins every good thing. So human sexuality, when we look at people as bodies and have no respect for the person, it immediately is going to change what's going to happen in something like a sexual encounter, where it's not going to lead to depth it's not going to lead to fruitfulness it's going to lead to dissatisfaction or harm think about the workplace where right now we're quickly replacing human beings with machines because the bottom line is efficiency but at the end of the day we've always been wanting really what we want from an employee is what we want from a machine (laughs) and we will treat them like a human being because that's one of the quirks if you want people to, to do what you want them to do you have to sort of make them satisfied enough but at the end of the day a work environment where you're just a cog in the machine is not going to be satisfying. Your work is not going to be life-giving. And yet that would happen, that's what happens with to so much of us in our work. It becomes about a, a list of tasks that we have, a list of things that we could achieve so we could accomplish something that never feels like anything rewarding because it's uh there's no life in it. And you look at at the the arts um where, where now the idea is if you could sort of learn the rules of a certain art form and learn how to market it you could make a career as an artist but the nature of that creative work comes with something so fundamentally human about struggle or vision or uh or a certain kind of experience that if i was reading this week you know I'm dating myself here but at the, the singer nick cave so he was kind of popular when i was growing up is now blogging a lot somebody uh put into chat gpt uh, give us uh, give us a song in the style of Nick Cave and then sent Nick Cave the lyrics and he has this blog post about it and when i read it i was like oh this actually sounds like a nick cave song and nick cave was like these lyrics are terrible and he you know and 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 he look he's the kind of guy filled with emotional struggle but he's saying yeah th- these words sound like the kind of phrases i would say but but if you really uh you really knew what my music was was about, you would recognize that this this has been generated by a computer, not by me. And and so everywhere we go, there's a tendency, because look, we have to be practical, we have to make decisions, things like efficiency as a concept are valuable, but there's always gonna be a tendency for every person to sort of objectify, to dehumanize, to become about tasks, accomplishment, achievement. And the end of that is that odd thing that even if you're successful at achieving, it's meaningless. So, so you, so the two paths become either I'm burning out and, and I'm resentful because I'm failing and I'm depressed, or I've gotten to the top and there's nothing there. Jesus is saying there's something within this that's meant to be there. That, that is, is we're always going to ignore. There's something lifeless about human experience and so the imagery of sin and darkness and the fact that we're dead and these various things are, are ways the bible is communicating there's there's a human problem and and its roots are an assumption about god and so you have uh you know if, if your assumption is not whether or not god exists that god is not personal that god's something out there that then affects the way you reason so it becomes harder to see the reality that god exists uh, but many of you are convinced that God is real and God does exist, and yet we wind up falling into the same patterns of well, what are the Christian rules? How does Christian culture function? And we do it, um, but at some point it feels like the the religious treadmill. We feel like we're just going through the motions. It's lifeless. Jesus is saying, look, you need to follow me because that's always gonna you're always gonna veer onto that path, but it doesn't have to to be that way. So um, when he says those who follow me will not walk in darkness, he's saying that, that from God's perspective, walking in darkness is kind of what it's like to be a human being. But Jesus is coming and inviting us to follow him. That doesn't need to be our fate, our only experience. So moving into the second point, following Jesus. So Jesus says he's the light of the world. If you follow him, you won't walk in darkness. Well, what does that mean to follow him? Um, So in this conflict Jesus is having with the religious leaders, in verse 21, he says to them, you will seek me and you will die in your sins. Where I am going, you cannot come. And it's interesting, even when we think about what, what does sin mean? How do we define sin and how does things work? Inevitably, we betray that there's something always not connected to God as person that sin comes uh, largely about there's God who has his rules, his commandments, and if you keep the rules, God rewards you, and if you break the rules, God will punish you. I think that's fundamentally what most of us believe. And it's not that that's entirely wrong, but it's missing the main thing. We're then relating not to God, but we're relating to the rules. Because if I keep the rules, then the God who has the power to reward or punish will act in my life. So we're acknowledging that God exists and is active, But God is not personal. We don't know God. We know the rules that God has given us. And so Jesus says, you will seek me and you will die in your sins. And your sin, it's not simple. You're going to do a bunch of things that God's going to punish you for. What he's saying is you don't know God. (laughs) Because you don't know God, you don't understand what I'm saying. And because you don't understand your judgment is wrong. So now I'm saying God is, the time has come that God is acting in your midst and you can't perceive it. And Jesus has come to invite us to follow him. He says, if you follow me, you will have the light of life. But the warning here is, but if you don't, when you want to seek me, you will not find me. Now, certainly, <clears throat> the, the application of this is for all people at all times to a certain degree, which is not to make this mistake of saying, well, Christianity seems true, and maybe life in God is good, but, you know, I want to have my fun, and then when I'm, when I'm older, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll look uh you know i'll consider religion again which would be to to, be, to feel, so fundamentally misunderstand things that you shouldn't assume that then when you would get older uh and you want uh what god offers that you would naturally find it that's part of the problem of what jesus is talking about but in the specific context where jesus is going to be crucified and he's going to be raised he's going to ascend into heaven He's talking to people who right now, if they want to find him, they can. They could just ask around. By the way, have you seen Jesus anywhere? Oh, yeah, he's he's up there in Capernaum. Okay, let's send a group of people up there, and then you get to town, and you're like, has Jesus been anywhere? Oh, he's teaching in the synagogue. If they seek Jesus right now, they can find him. But Jesus is saying, you need to follow me because I'm going to a place that you will never find on your own. And right now, don't be fooled into thinking that you can find me whenever you like when I've come to call you. Because at some point where I am going, you simply cannot come. And then you're going to be stuck in the darkness looking for me. And and so that's his warning to this particular group. Certainly a warning that has implications for us. But he says to them, you will seek me and you will die in your sins. Where I am going, you cannot come. Which makes them wonder, where is he going? And that's exactly Jesus' point. You don't know. You don't know where I'm going. You don't know how to get there. But if you trust me, I will. I will lead you through. I will move you. Along. And so in verse 23, he says, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. And so there's a sense in which Jesus is saying is, I have come from above to make known the things you cannot know and to invite you to follow me to where I would take you. But all you know is this world and you have no imagination, no ability to see, and you're going to allow this to pass and not follow me. But he's saying, but, but if you follow me, you will have the light of life. And so in our judgment, <clears throat> that is confused, we make wrong choices. Uh, the first human being who went to outer space was Yuri Gagarin. so he was a Russian astronaut. And it is said that when he got up there, he said, there is no God up here. Let me say two things about that. First of all, the, the fact that we assume there is a place where we could find God. Uh, is part of the problem. That's what Jesus is saying, is when you think you can seek God and find him, understand that God is here in front of you and you don't see him. (laughs) So don't think you could seek God and find him. So if we conceive of God above the heavens, meaning the clouds, and we invent an airplane and God's not above the clouds, we've exited the atmosphere, and guess what? We don't see God. Proof of atheism. And Jesus would say, I was standing in front of you and you didn't see me. Why did you think you would discover god in outer space you can't seek after god as though god is in a tangible place that you can find There's a second interesting thing about that statement uh yuri did not make it this was part of uh russian propaganda um trying to make an argument for atheism to say well look how amazing human beings are and you get into outer space and there's no god up here and so there's a famous political um A poster with a picture of an astronaut on it saying something to the effect of there is no God that was meant to be a mark of human achievement but it's very interesting there is no God in that case is not a theological statement it's a political statement they attributed it to a person who achieved something amazing who did not achieve it and therefore the trustworthiness of the people claiming there is no God in order that you would trust their government there's something a little bit more dangerous here that's the kind of darkness Jesus is talking about where confused people and you have God who would give you life and invite you to follow him and because you can't see him you will trust people that are making claims that are fundamentally not true and therefore you will not find God you will die in your sin Jesus is saying I have come so that you wouldn't have to die in your sin so that darkness would not be the the imagery that describes How you live or the outcome of your life and so jesus in verse 28 says when you have lifted up the son of man that's how he referred to himself at times the son of man so me when you have lifted up the son of man then you will know that i am he quite a profound statement in terms of jesus talking about i am uh in john and those of you familiar with the bible there's just a lot of things in there that you could see in that statement but what's he talking about when you lift me up then you will know that I am He. And keep in mind he's been saying, unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. But you will know it when you lift me up. And for all of the debate that scholars have about each component of this passage, basically there's, you know, there's uh, near full alignment that Jesus is talking about when he's crucified. When I am lifted up, when when you nail me to the cross, then you will know that I am he. And it's kind of an interesting claim that makes John a little bit different from the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when Jesus is lifted up on the cross, there's, there's uh, one of the lessons they want you to get is Jesus was humiliated. He was humiliated on your behalf, but what does it say about human beings that we would take this one who claimed to be the light of the world and to give his life and we would humiliate him? In John, there seems to be this sense in which the lifting up on the cross is actually Jesus's glorification. We normally think Jesus going to the cross is where he was humiliated and his resurrection and Ascension is his glorification. But John seems to be saying, but when actually you you lift up Jesus on the cross, then you will see what is it we're expected to see. And when you read John's gospel, John who doesn't mention himself much, but refers to himself as the beloved disciple. Uh, John who records Jesus's, among Jesus' last words from the cross, his looking at John and saying, Son, behold your mother, and looking at Mary, woman, behold your son. And if you read through John's Gospel and the epistles of John, um, the theme, it's, it's John who says, God is love. Uh, love, however you think of it, uh, it's emotional, it's a number of other things, but it's fundamentally personal. When God says the law is fulfilled, when you love God and neighbor, he's talking about a different way. It's not about keeping rules. It's not about pe- people treating people as objects. It's not about being, quote, successful in life. There's something deeply personal. God loves, and therefore to know God is to experience some reality of that. So John, the beloved disciple, what did he see when he saw Jesus on the cross? Not the one who lost control of the situation, was betrayed, and is humiliated. he saw the one who came to lay down his life for him so that he would have life. When John looks up at the cross and Jesus says, son, behold, your mother, he's, he's putting him in a new family. He's, he's shining a light into his life. He's exposing that the God who has come to invite us to follow him is a God who enters into the darkness, a God who uh, warns us that we will die in our sins, but actually also dies in our sins and who says, if you trust me, you will have life. It's a message not about the fact that God exists and that there are benefits for being a Christian, but it's a revelation that God loves, and he sent his son into the world to find us because we can't find him, and to make known the ways of God so that we come alive. And so uh, it's interesting that the cross is kind of like the lights going on. There's a sense in which fundamentally what is the nature of God when we ask these theoretical questions that John is presenting is the nature of God is God is just and God is merciful and God is kind as God is generous and God is sacrificial and God is committed to you more than you're committed to him. And there's something about Jesus on the cross that starts to, uh, when the spirit comes and shows us that takes away that hardness of heart that brings us to life, that there's a God who actually loves us. Uh, That we don't mediate uh, God through commandments or through philosophy or through principles, but through the person, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. So when Jesus says, follow me, he's now inviting us to to life, to life with him, to know God, to follow him. And it's interesting, as John's gospel ends, you have Mary, not his mother, a different Mary, going to the tomb. And John tells us she goes in the darkness at Easter. She, She goes there before the sun is up. And the stone is rolled away the body's not in there peter and john come well maybe the body's there but it's dark you just can't see it maybe somebody will invent a device you could keep in your pocket and pull out and press a button and then you can see what's in the tomb is he there is he not there they're having this conversation and then jesus appears to mary and uh she's overwhelmed she falls down and in verse 17 of john 20 jesus said to her do not cling to me for i have not yet ascended to the father go to my brothers and say to them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. And that's the thing. Those of us from below, how can we lift Jesus up? We could get him eight feet off the ground. Uh, Now we could fly him into outer space. There's a limit on how much a human being from here can lift up. But Jesus says, but I am from above. And therefore the Father, when he lifts me up, it will be from the grave. But I will ascend into heaven. And Jesus says, I've come to call you. And if you join with me and follow me, you're not stuck in the limitations of the best of what human beings can do. But now I will lead you where you otherwise could not go. I will bring you to a place you would not otherwise find. I will give you a life that you could not earn and don't deserve because it's always by grace. And so when Jesus says, I'm ascending into heaven to my God and to your God, you know, in our passage, he's saying, you don't know my father. But Jesus is now saying, but my father is your father. (laughs) And so the next thing he says in John 20 is, as the father has sent me, so I am sending you. And that's what Jesus is saying. Now you go into the world, not with God out there as a concept, but but you go into the world, God with you. You can know God and you will have the light of life. So that's the last thing I'm gonna talk about, the light of life, this is the third thing. Uh, so he's, so light is the metaphor. I am the light of the world. Um, if you follow me, you will not walk in darkness, but you'll have the light of life. John says, I've written this so that you would have life in his name. And Jesus is using the language and the, the picture of light to communicate that to us, that he's saying, you'll have the light of life. In other words, you will, you will come alive. You will see, you will think, you will act differently. You will experience the world differently. So in verse 24, he says, unless you believe that I am he. And so, yeah, there's content. We need to understand who is Jesus. What is he claiming? There are things we need to think about. There's things we need to study. There there are problems we need to work through. But that belief in verse 24 or at the last verse uh, where it says that many in this crowd were believing. uh, Jesus, you know, what does it mean to believe? Well, part of it is not just to, to stay there, think what you think, and make decisions, but to actually follow him. Um, belief and following they're distinct but they go together when jesus says believe in me he's, he's not saying form an opinion about me that then you could argue for but he's saying trust me so that as i move forward you will go where i go that you will do life with me and so the kind of belief that is life-giving that that comes from the renewal of the spirit is personal where then we we want to know God. We receive God's love and seek to love God and walk in love. And that's where the relational model is helpful because you know when you when you know a person, you could really know them, but not know a lot about them. Whereas if you if you have a job and you learn a quarter of the tasks you're supposed to do and how things work, but you don't know the rest, you're not going to function well. And we relate to God via the commands. If I if I if I understand God perfectly, if I do the right things morally, well then I'll thrive. And Jesus is saying, you need to know God which means there's a lot that you don't yet know. So you don't need to have it all figured out. It doesn't all need to make sense. You don't need to have been perfected as a human being yet. You need to trust God and walk with God. And so um, verse 26, he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I've heard from him. What Jesus is saying um, is that he's trustworthy. So it's not like these are the true facts. You could say that. If you're only relating to God via facts, you're not relating to God, you're relating to ideas. What Jesus is saying is if you understand what I'm claiming, um, even if you don't fully grasp it, even if it's a little confusing, even if you've got questions, maybe there's, that skepticism is there. Jesus says, well, well belief is following me. Are you going to trust me enough that when I say that I could lead you where you otherwise not, would not go, that I am good, I am trustworthy, what we need to do is, is join our lives with him, not um, figure him out completely. And so um, here's, here's an example uh, from my own life of, uh, well, hopefully it will seem related by the end of this. So in high school, I joined the swim team. I always loved swimming. It was a lot of fun. And then every day showing up at that cold pool and not getting to do cannonballs or whatever it is that I had been doing up until that point and having to just you know do f- five more laps with a coach with a whistle. Swimming became less fun, such that by the time I was done with high school, um, even on vacation, the pool just lost its magic. You know, do you want to go for a swim? Not really. No, thanks. Um, For me, what I loved about swimming was not the fitness, not the competition. It was more the vacation-y thing, and, and I did the fitness competition thing, and I just didn't enjoy it. Um and it and because I didn't enjoy it, it it changed uh my experience not just of of the high school swim team, but every now and then I still on vacation feel like oh I'm supposed to get like, you know, if, if if we're at a pool where there's a lane, I'm thinking, oh, I need to go and do laps and and I just decide I'm gonna stay in my room and read a book while my family plays in the pool. Well, Ren Cabente, the pastor of Uptown Community Church, he grew up swimming, went to Columbia, I think, on a swimming scholarship. Um he loved swimming trained for years so some years ago he's gonna have a sabbatical what do you do on your sabbatical you know my answer you eat cake you drink coffee you read a lot of books wren decides that the most restful thing he could do is to train for the iron man triathlon so he had been running because the so he wants to get coaching of somebody that would like stand there and yell at him and point out everything that's wrong with him um but what wren he loved the ex- he's just a, he's a competitive guy. He just want to finish this. He's a goal-oriented person. He just loved it. And um, what I'm getting at here is, is some of us, our relation to religion or Christianity is more like me, where you just learn what you're supposed to do, you do it, um, but there's a disconnect. It just, it's just exhausting. It's tiring. And then the longer you're a Christian, the more you feel like just light, you're dying. Um, that's what happens when it becomes about a bunch of rules you're supposed to keep just because that's what you're supposed to do, a competition that you don't care about winning that you need to win. Um, but when you have that sense that actually um, th- there's something fundamental, you know, so when I think of Ren, um, he doesn't love getting in a cold pool more than anybody else does, but but because he wants something there, then those things are not the dominant things. It's not first and foremost about being corrected about training, but it's first and foremost about this desire to, to be healthy and uh, to accomplish something. And then the other things come into play. I think that's what Jesus is, is in some ways highlighting for us to the particular audience is there are all these things that you feel like you have to do and you're, you're winning all the religious awards, but you don't know God. The evidence being I'm announcing good news and you want to argue against me rather than rejoicing. Something's wrong. And we are always going to catch ourselves in that. You may not be a Christian and find yourself not wanting uh, to draw near to Christianity because that's your perception. It's about a God that, that punishes or rewards. And it's about a list of rules. It's about this weird Christian culture. And that would be a misunderstanding. It's about understanding God and his grace. But those of us who are committed will catch ourselves at points realizing, I'm not walking with God. I'm, I'm doing Christian things. And there 's only so long we can do that without starting to have the symptoms of anxiety or depression or discouragement because we're uh, we 're we're, we're being dehumanized, and so what Jesus is saying is, "If you walk with me, if God is with you, um, it will change your experience and look, the realistic view of life is yes, yeah, sometimes, just like Wren needs to get in the pool when he 's not feeling well and it 's a cold day, and you just need to do it, but when you do it for the right reasons, it has a different outcome uh, sometimes We just need to keep the commandments because they're wise, because they're true. Sometimes you show up at church not because you felt like coming to church. And so being authentic doesn't mean if you don't wanna do it, don't do it. Trusting God means actually his ways are right. So I don't feel like doing it, I'm still gonna trust him. But what we need to guard ourselves against is years and years of just going through the motions of showing up, you know, being bodily here, but thinking about other things, keeping the commandments because you fear punishment. That's an entirely different vision. That's a a fundamentally from below way of thinking. Jesus is trying to reveal a from above way of thinking. And so when Jesus says in verse 29, speaking about himself, he says, He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. We were in a Bible study. We might say, why do the things that are pleasing to him? So that he rewards you instead of punishing you. Jesus is saying, the one who sent me is with me, and he has not left me alone. And therefore, doing the things that please him is actually what leads to a a joyous life. (laughs) The Father has sent me to announce good news, and and announcing good news and doing what glorifies the Father is actually what brings me joy. So Jesus says, the one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Remember that John uh, records the ending of the gospel. As the Father has sent me, so I have sent you. So make 29, verse 29, something you think about this week. He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And it's, it's that sense of isolation that all of us are prone to, that Jesus says, but I've, I've come to be with you. You will not find me, but I will find you. And even if you don't see me right now, believe uh, the grace, the love of this personal God who has done these things for you. And so I'm with you. If you can see it and experience it, you will be joyful. If you're not seeing it or experiencing it, follow me. Stay with it. Don't get discouraged. We're human beings. Um, life is hard in a number of ways. But don't start keeping the rules because you fear that God is going to punish you. But But think of what are the ways of Christ that I could follow so that he is with me. And so practice that this week. When you go out into the world, uh, you are not an isolated individual that needs to perform or justify your existence or make people like you. Uh, If you're a Christian, if you're following Christ, you're going with the Holy Spirit in you. God is with you. And then it's not that you need to do the things that God will please you so he doesn't leave. It's... Because life is, it it comes alive when you realize, actually, uh, the one who gave all things to me, I could do things, if God is generous, this generous action doesn't have a pragmatic outcome. If I'm generous to this person, they'll be generous to me. But God is generous, and therefore generosity would please God. It would be a delight to do what's pleasing to the God who has been generous to me. And when that's how you're walking through the world, not in terms of the tasks you need to get done or what people will think of you, but But God has come to be with you, and he will light the path before you. And what are the things, the good things of God, that if you do them, will bring goodness into your life? That's when we come alive. That's when we have a living Christianity and not just a a dead religion. Jesus says he's the light of the world. If you follow him, you will not walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. Let him uh, shine that light before your path. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we desire life, and yet it's such a concept that we have trouble seeing and understanding that with honesty, Lord, there's so much we still don't get. There's so much we're not doing. There's so much we're not experiencing. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your initiative. Thank you for the good news that you come to dead people to give them life, that you come to sinners to cleanse them. You come to isolated individuals to be present with them. You come to those who don't know a personal world and you love them. And then you show us by your light that this world has meaning because you are with us in it. And that if we walk with you, um, that that will start to, to shape our judgment. And so, Lord, train us, show us, lead us, watch over us, be gracious to us and be patient with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.